morning. This morning's scripture comes from Psalm 10, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he, that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten he has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper, helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness into account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is God's true word. So we're in the Psalms again. When I was a little boy, this song was playing over the radio. Well, they say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Sinners are much more fun. Only the good die young. Billy Joel sang those words. Billy Joel, for most of his life, has professed to be an atheist. Interesting story of how he got there when he was a child. Nonetheless, that's for another time and another day. Billy Joel, like, like some theoretical atheists who, who don't believe that there is a purpose to the universe or to humanity or to the world in which we live or to life itself, nonetheless, are admirable people. Uh, I'm grateful that many atheists live inconsistently. Uh, because although they do not believe in a purpose to the universe or our lives, nonetheless, they have an admirable sense of right and wrong. They still seek and uphold and, and appreciate justice and beauty and goodness. One commentator on Psalm 10 made the point that it's not so much the theoretical atheists that are the big problem in the world, it's the functional atheists. It's the practical atheists. It's not so much people who don't believe in God that is the problem in the world. What's really the problem are people who act as though there is no God, who functionally act and speak 
as though God doesn't exist, as though God is not watching, as though we are not accountable to him. Psalm 10 opens with a lament. And the lament, if you think about Billy Joel's words, the lament, the psalmist is basically saying to God, hey, the sinners are having more fun and getting away with it. What do I do about that? Now, this is a very relevant issue for all of us, isn't it? Very, very, very old psalm, uh, but a very relevant issue. Where is God when bad people do bad things and get away with it? As Jonathan spoke to the children, that's something you have to deal with on the playground in elementary school. Why do bad people who do bad things get away with them? And it's something you have to deal with when you read the newspaper and you see what corporations do and, uh, and, and yet the CEOs are rewarded uh, while common people like you and me are destroyed uh, by, by the decisions and, and the greed of, of the few. What do you do about it? You see injustice in the world. Sometimes you experience it in your own life and you feel a sense of outrage or you, you feel a sense of grief. Sometimes you're even drawn, you're even pushed to despair. You ever felt like just giving up, hopeless because of injustice? What do you do with your emotions in a situation like that? What do you do with your convictions? How do you respond to injustice? Do you take action? Yeah, yeah, sometimes yes. We've talked about this at different times in the last several months, individually and, and as a church. Yes, sometimes we act as citizens or as Christians. We act when we see injustice sometimes. Uh, sometimes we give, right? We send money or, or we, we gather our resources in response to injustice. Sometimes that's the right approach. Uh, sometimes we... Uh, we post on social media. I wish we'd do that less, <laughs> but, but sometimes that's appropriate. In every situation, wisdom, prudence, discernment is needed as we respond to injustice in the world. Yet every single time, I can promise you this, every single time, always, when we see injustice, when we're grieved by it, when we're outraged by it, or when we're driven to almost a sense of despair, we can always, regardless of the situation, ask ourselves, am I responding to what I'm seeing? Am I responding in fear? Or am I responding in faith? That is a great question to ask yourself. Am I responding in fear or am I about to respond in faith? Great way to examine yourself like that is prayer. It's a great way to examine yourself. And uh, pr I really believe prayer is the primary faith-based response to injustice. It's not the only, and we've talked about this, it is not the only response to injustice, but it is the primary response for the Christian the primary response is always prayer, self-analyzing prayer. And actually, I think what you're going to see in Psalm 10 today is that the prayer of faith trusts that God's justice always wins in the end. And as you look at Psalm 10 in detail, you're going to see three types of prayer, nervous prayer, bold prayer, and hopeful prayer. So I want to talk about that nervous prayer, bold prayer, and hopeful prayer. Because the psalmist has this transition. Now we begin with just nervous prayer. 
Okay, the psalm begins with nervous prayer. And, and, and what does he say? What does he start singing? Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, verses 2 through 11 highlight the wicked, the actions of the wicked and the thoughts of the wicked. This is, this is why the psalm writer is nervous. Because he, he describes what the wicked are like, what he's seeing happen in the world in verses 2 through 11. I won't read through it all. I'll just quote a couple of passages so that you get an idea. So here are the, this is how the wicked act. He says, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He describes him as a, like a lion, like a predator. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Isn't that interesting? Under his tongue. You know, what sits under your tongue? The intentions behind your words. So it's not just what he does to take advantage of people, but it's even, it's even how the wicked speak. Their very words, how they communicate, are designed to undermine and deceive, even if it looks pleasant, even if it looks intelligent, even, even if it looks humanitarian. Beneath the words is, is, a, is plotting. His ways prosper at all times. Right? Like some people get, have you ever said this? Some people get all the breaks. I'm struggling here trying to do the right thing. And these people I know are doing the wrong thing. They're getting away with it. And they're prospering and they're healthy and they're beautiful. And, and their bank accounts are full. And I'm trying to do the right thing. And life sucks. And this is what the psalmist sees. Not only are the actions of the wicked driving him to anxiety, but the very thoughts of the wicked are a concern to him. This is what he says the wicked think about. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So you may think, well, that's, that's real theoretical atheism, right? Well, not, not necessarily, because look what else he says. I shall not meet adversity, and then this. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. It's like a functional atheism. The idea, and I think we... People think this subconsciously. Yeah, there, there may be a God, but he's clearly not holding me to account. Okay, so it's because the wicked exploit the weak that the psalmist is nervous. It's because the wicked, the powerful, take advantage of those who are vulnerable and those who are naive for their own benefit, which is a long, long time ago. Plato said that very thing, that injustice basically is when someone benefits at another person's expense. I benefit at your disadvantage. That's, that's basically what injustice is in its simplest form. And the psalmist sees this. Calvin describes the people that the psalmist is talking about this way, that, that they're intoxicated with their own prosperity. And because of that, they've shaken off all the fear of God. And they think that they can do whatever they want with impunity. So he's anxious and nervous about what he sees going on. Uh, but he's also amazed. I mean, the psalm opens up with, why? Where are you, God? That's really an amazement. Like, why is God not acting? He, he can't see God's justice at the moment. All he, can see, uh, all he can see is people acting like they're above the law, divine law, human law. And so he's amazed and he's nervous and he prays. He prays. And I, I want to ask you a personal question. I, I want to hear from you. If the psalmist were looking at the world today, what, were the, what would be the things that would outrage him? 
And so if he's writing this now, what are the things in our day, in our society, in our world that would outrage the psalmist? Uh, for the sake of the recording, just try and make your answers brief. I, I enjoy the stories, but we're just going to keep, keep the answers short. But what do you think, honestly? Like, if the psalmist were here right now, what would outrage him? What do you think? Okay, I, I thought of that. Yeah, human trafficking. There's human trafficking, uh, how people for, for financial gain entrap and take advantage of those who are weak. Yes, even children. Um, I also thought of drug trafficking, right? How many people are making a lot of money preying upon our dependency for substances, right? All kinds of substances. How many people take advantage of the fact that other people um, have uh, psychological and physical uh, and chemical dependencies and they're making money off of it and we're ruining our lives as a result of their money making? Good. What else? What would it outrage the psalmist? Yeah. I'm sorry. Man, great. Identity theft. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in, in, in a very short period of time, your, your entire life can just uh, be, thrown up into an, uh, be thrown into an uproar because someone steals your identity. Cyber crimes. Yeah. I think he would be outraged. Let's write a psalm. Let's write a psalm about about identity theft. Yeah. Abortion. Okay. Yeah. Now, there, there, the an, an unborn human being is is truly somebody that cannot speak or act for herself or for himself. Yes. What else? Religious intolerance. Interesting. Yeah. Religious intolerance. So our culture is really about tolerance, uh, but there's an intolerance for uh, uh, a a worldview like Christianity that has some exclusive claims. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then, but, but, and in the name of tolerance, sometimes what's wrong becomes right and what's right becomes wrong and, and, and the truth uh, gets distorted. Uh, And so there's, there's a real frustration about that. I thought I saw a hand here, Kathy. Yeah, uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's, that's the slogan of, of a, a popular TV show about uh, politics and how po- politicians can be uh, so corrupt. Yeah, what else? Yeah. Genocide, all different types of genocide. All different types of genocide, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Racism, major injustice, Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Abduction, right. Like kidnappings, things like that. Yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. Uh, the not accepting refugees. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so uh, people have nothing. They, they're trying to escape terror or they're trying to escape terrible circumstances and nobody will, nobody will harbor them. Nobody will shelter them. Uh, that's a form of injustice. Okay. Uh, but I thought I saw another hand. Yeah. Overindulgence, uh, as an injustice, as an injustice. Yeah. Yeah. What else? No, no, no more. Oh yeah. Terrorism and injustice. Yeah. Why do the wicked prosper? It says in another Psalm. Yeah. 
and, and sometimes succeed terrorism. Okay, great. Uh, everybody had a lot of good, lot of good responses. Yeah, and just trying to find my place in the notes here. Yep. Yeah, you guys kind of covered everything I thought of mentioning. You know, the psalmist, this is what's interesting because he starts by looking at all of the issues that you just brought up. Different cultural context, but assume he's looking at very similar issues. And he's very anxious and he's very nervous. The cool thing is he doesn't stay in his anxiety. He doesn't end in his anxiety. He gets out of his own way. He moves out of his anxiety into, into boldness. He, he breaks into bold prayer. And we see in verse 4, I'm sorry, in verse 12, he says, finally, he's done talking about the wicked. And he says, arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. He says in verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Look at that figuratively. He's not saying that every, you know, every terrorist needs to have a broken arm as if they can't use their other arm to inflict more evil. Break the arm means break his power. Break his ability to do what he's doing. Okay. Break the systems and the ideologies and the influences um, and, and the control uh, that the powerful have upon the weak. This is intercession. You know what intercession is? Intercession is praying for other people. Intercession is praying to God on behalf of someone else. In, 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 in its basic form. He begins to intercede. Eugene Peterson said in his book on prayer. We have it on the book table. It's called Answering God. Peterson said that prayer is combat. There, there's nothing rosy. There are no platitudes in the Psalms. You know, the Psalms are not things you put on, on postcards and, and uh, you know, the Christian bookstore has tons of postcards and tons of greeting cards. A lot of the Psalms are not quoted on greeting cards because this is what they talk about. Break the arm of the wicked. Prayer is warfare. It's battling. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. I think particularly of the second and the third petition in the Lord's Prayer you know what they are? Your kingdom come. Jesus taught his disciples to pray that way. Your kingdom come. And then your will be done, Father, on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning we can pray that the reign of God will invade the power systems of this world. Politics, culture. I'm not saying it's all bad, right? But that the reign of God will invade and begin to overcome the powers and the systems of the kingdoms of this world. Your kingdom come. That's not just, it just doesn't mean Jesus come back for good. That, of course, is what it means. It means both that and it means God work now. May your reign and your rule be evident right now in life, in culture, in government, in finance, in my life, in our community, in education. But he also told his, his apostles, not only should we ask that God's kingdom come, but ask that his will is done, just like it's done in heaven, that his will is done here on earth. Meaning, we, we can pray that people begin to reject their own agenda and embrace God's agenda. The wicked, yes. But us as well, that everybody embraces embraces God's agenda for the world and for humanity, and we begin to eject our own agenda, right? Uh, Martin Luther prayed this way. He said, you know what, Father? 
um, convert the wicked, okay? Just convert them so that we can all serve you and worship you together. But if you're not going to convert them, uh, then please stop their wicked deeds, right? So, so that they can't accomplish what, what they're doing anymore, right? Pray, pray, for, pay, pray for people in love, even for your enemies, Jesus said. Uh, nonetheless, you see the psalmist moving out of his anxiety into bold prayer. And not only is it bold, but it's confident. He's confident. Look at, look at what he says in verse 14. He's talking about everything that's happening in the world. Right? He's, he's saying, yeah, God, where are you? Why are you hiding? But he says this, but you do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. This reminded me of Genesis chapter 16, where Hagar, this, this young teenager, she's basically a slave. She's a servant. She doesn't really have any rights. Um, Sarah abuses her and Abram neglects her. And now she's, she's a teenager. She's pregnant. She runs away into the desert. She's completely on her own. She's completely helpless. She's been victimized. And the Lord appears to her. Read about it in Genesis chapter 16. The Lord appears to her and, and this young woman gives God a name. It's pretty remarkable. Not many people get to name God in the Bible. Uh, this young woman gets to give God a name and she calls him the God who sees me. You're the God who sees me, she says. So one scholar, his name is Derek Kidner, and he, wrote, uh, he, he commented on the Psalms, and he says something interesting about, about Psalm 10. He says that there are really two things that the psalmist asks God to do, and, and God doesn't answer. Uh, the first is the question, why? Where are you, God? Why are you not doing anything? Right? He doesn't get an answer. And then the call arise, the call for God to arise, he doesn't get an answer for that either. God, the call for God to arise isn't answered, and uh, the question, why are you distant, isn't answered. But nonetheless, confidence is given to face trouble. He doesn't, answer, he doesn't answer his request, but he gives him confidence to face what he's going through because he knows God sees. God does see, and God does provide protection and encouragement and comfort to those who are oppressed. And so he says in verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. He believes that God will, at some point, God will restore justice and peace, even though at the present, I cannot see it happening. He's not just king now. He's not just king over Israel or over the United States of America. The psalmist says he is king forever. The Lord is king forever and ever. His justice is greater. It is perfect. It's outside of time and space. So when we pray in faith like this, uh, we, we ask God, we ask for his perfect justice, even though we don't see it now. The prayer of faith says, okay, I, I cannot see God's justice, but I believe he will be just. And that's how we begin to pray, and that gets us out of our anxiety. Now, I want to ask you a question. Have you not been praying with boldness? Have you not been praying with confidence? Are you stuck in your anxiety? Maybe we keep, you, you know, you keep praying, but you're still nervous. 
You keep praying, but you're still anxious. You keep praying, but you can't sleep. You keep praying, you keep praying but you're petrified. What's going on there? Well, I think it's sight-related. I think it has to do with what you see. Back in verse 5, the psalmist tucks something into his rant about the wicked. This is, you almost miss it. You gloss over it. But in verse 5, he, sa- he says about God, he says, Your judgments are on high out of his sight. God, your judgments are far away out of the wicked sight. He can't see what you're doing. But he keeps doing it because he can't see your justice. It's much higher than he is. It's hidden from him. Okay, so, so if, if that's true, if the wicked can't see how God is adjudicating, neither can you. Because Isaiah chapter 55 says to everybody, wicked and righteous, God's ways are so much higher than our ways. Like, like the heavens are higher than, than the surface of the earth. And God says through Isaiah 55, you know, my ways are not your ways, not even close So the wicked can't see God's justice, but neither can we in the moment. And I think that's something important to just sit on for a minute. Because the secular mindset would say, well, because God is missing in action or because God is dead, hey, anything goes. But what are the moralistic people tempted to say? Well, kind of the reverse. Because anything goes around here, I guess God is missing in action. Because anything goes around here, maybe God is actually dead. It's something we're all, we're all tempted to think when we just focus on what we see. See, you're stuck in, you're stuck in anxiety as you pray or don't pray because you're praying by sight. We just sang about living by faith. Well, maybe we should pray by faith. And I think the problem often is that we, we end up praying by sight, right? We base our emotions and our convictions and our prayers simply on what we see happening or what we don't see happening. And that's not faith. But the psalmist in his progression, he emerges out of the, he emerges out of the conflict. Real prayer is struggle. Real prayer is conflict. If you're not wrestling while you pray, there, there's probably something wrong with your prayer life. Um, but he emerges out of the conflict with hope. There's a lot of hope in this psalm towards the end. Uh, one Hebrew scholar uh, really summed up the entire psalm this way. This is the progression. The psalmist begins in amazement. Why is he amazed? He's amazed because God seems to be absent. He's amazed that God's absent. And so he is very anxious because he sees what people do in the world. And he's just all nervous. He's a nervous Nelly. And then he breaks into bold prayer. Because he knows what the Bible says. And he knows what God has done. And he remembers the promises that God has kept. And so he prays in boldness. And as he prays with boldness, something starts to happen in him. Confidence. He develops confidence. What, in himself? No, in God. And not only does he develop confidence, but then it leads to anticipation. Now he's hopeful in what himself? No, in God. What does he say? Um, In verses 17 and 18. Now, by the way, let me just say amazement, anxiety, boldness, confidence, anticipation. Don't don't assume that every prayer is supposed to be like this is one psalm. This is one prayer. It's not a formula. I'm just saying 
He wrestles with anxiety because of what's going on in the world, but he remembers God, and in boldness, he has confidence and anticipation for God to do what he knows God does. Okay, and he comes out of it in hopeful anticipation. Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. Hope is really being absolutely sure that God's going to accomplish what he's promised to accomplish. And so he says, oh, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. He prays by faith. The prophet Habakkuk, he said almost the same thing to God. The world is a mess. People are doing terrible things. There's evil all around me here in Israel. When are you going to show up and do something about it? And God's answer to Habakkuk is very interesting. As an aside, he basically says, here's what I'm going to do about the wickedness all around you. I'm sending the Babylonians. This terrible group of people, I'm sending the Babylonians to deal with all the things that are stressing you out right now. Just think about that for a second. But God goes beyond that and he says something really important. He says to Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's an important statement. Paul used it in in Romans. But what can the believer do? What can the person who is going to take the Bible seriously do when all this stuff is going on in the world? Well, there are many things we can do, but what we must always do, what we are left to do is to live by faith and allow all of our actions and responses to come out of faith, not out of fear. Faith is basically agreeing that what God has done and said is true. And faith is basically agreeing and anticipating that what God promises will take place someday. Agreeing with what God has done and anticipating what he has promised he will do. And how do you pray that way? How do you pray in faith? Okay. As opposed to just praying a mantra. As opposed to just praying for the same thing again and again. And even if you see no results, always, always being stuck in frustration, always being stuck in fear. How do you pray in faith? Well, it's a matter of identity. It has to do with, it has to do with your identity. Randy Neighbors is a pastor who has spent a lot of time in his life working with the poor, working with those who are marginalized and forgotten and oppressed. And Randy Neighbors said something interesting once. He said, when the poor believe, like Hagar, when the poor believe that God sees them, they're no longer poor. Now, he didn't say all of a sudden their financial situation changes. Uh, they're no longer being abused. They're no longer, when, when refugees know that God sees them, it's not like they're no longer refugees. No, their identity changes. Randy Neighbors said that for oppressed people, a big issue is identity. But when they know that God sees them, when they know that God regards their plight, they're not that, their identity changes. And there, there's a, and, and so since we're talking about identity, I want to talk to you about the gospel, about the good news of Christianity, because there's, there's a faint glimmer of it here in Psalm 10. I don't know if you saw this, uh, but I, I want to bring up verse 15, because as the psalmist is interceding for the weak and the oppressed, and, and, he, and, he, and he says, God, break the arm of the wicked so that they can't do what they're doing. 
This is what he says about the wicked person. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Some English translations say something different, but most people agree this is what it means. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. What, what does that mean? Call his wickedness into account until you find none. It really means this. Call his wickedness to account until there's nothing left to account for. Judge his wickedness until there's nothing left to judge. Get all of it, God. Don't leave any of it unmet. Full, complete, perfect justice is what the psalmist is asking for. Now, I just kind of looked at that and thought, hmm, that reminds me of someone. It reminds me of myself. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's praying about the wicked. But when I read those words, call all his wickedness to account until you find none, I thought of myself. Because I, I then thought of Romans chapter 5, where Paul said, when we were still, didn't we read this earlier? Okay, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. It doesn't say, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the good guys and good gals. Christ died for the perfect righteous people. No, it says, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And he went on to say in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So for the Christian, there's nothing left to judge. That's why Jesus hung on the cross for me, I realized. So that God could look at me and say, there is nothing left to judge in him because God put it all on Jesus. So the psalmist prayer is answered in an interesting way. It's answered in the sense that now, by faith, you can look at Jesus and say, wow, all of my wickedness was judged on the cross when Christ hung there. And so God judged my wickedness until there was nothing left to judge. How much more will he judge all wickedness, wickedness that has gone unconfessed? How much more will God judge all wickedness if he was willing on the cross to judge mine? So it's a warning and an invitation If you think that God is not holding you accountable, friend, I want to warn you, he will. So why not now give yourself to God so that Jesus can speak for you? Why not allow God to judge all of your sin and wickedness on the cross when Christ hung there? Receive that on behalf of yourself. So that a day won't come when you are no longer here in your flesh and blood and when you stand before your creator and you you won't have to say, wow, there's still a lot to judge in me. And I really think this this changes our identity. I had said a little while earlier, the the reason we struggle in in prayer is an identity issue. Well, Well, look, this is what happens. When you realize that Jesus was judged for your wickedness on the cross, it changes your identity. It helps you transition from thinking like someone who deserves God's wrath to now realizing you're you're someone who has been given God's mercy. It helps you transition from thinking like an orphan, which is nobody's advocating for me, to a child. God advocates for me. 
He's my loving father. I can trust in him. I think as a parent, even when our kids don't see us, we're always working for them, aren't we? Like, you know, our kids go off to school. Uh, They go to public school. So when our kids leave the house and when they don't see us all day, we don't all of a sudden disappear and cease to exist as parents. Even when they're apart from us, we're working for them. We're praying for them. We're making money for them. We're, we're, We're doing everything for them, even though they can't see us. We hope they recognize that. It may help them as they respond to crisis and injustice on the playground, (laughs) right? But just because we're out of sight to our children doesn't mean we cease to act on their behalf. Now, an orphan doesn't think that way because an orphan knows I can't trust anybody. And so when the orphan is having a bad day at school or a bad day at work, Or a bad day in the neighborhood, the orphan can only rely on herself. The orphan can only rely on himself. And that's when we start to take matters into our own hands. That's when we start to become our own judges. It's because we're not trusting in a heavenly father. That's why I mean this identity shift has to take place in order to truly pray. Yes, with anxiety, yeah, 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 yeah. But to wrestle through the anxiety and get to a place where we can boldly expect God to work, although we can't see him working in the present. You know, if you can think that way about God, well, then you can pray in faith. Otherwise, you pray like an orphan. You're, You're stuck in that anxiety or you stop praying altogether because you're relying on yourself, aren't you? But the prayer of faith trusts that God's justice is going to win in the end. So, so, so why not let Jesus advocate for you? Why not let the God of these Psalms be your defender and your protector? Just because you don't see him doesn't mean he's not working for you. Bring him your anxiety. Paul said, Peter said, cast all your cares upon this God. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And Paul said, don't be anxious about anything. But by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let God know what your requests are. And the God of peace, which is greater than your ability to understand what's going on around you, this is my paraphrase, the God of peace will be with you. So bring your anxiety to him and just you watch him. I'm telling you, test me on this. Test him on this. Watch him make you bold. In what you ask him for. I don't mean bold in yourself. I mean bold in him. In who he is and what he can do. Watch him make you confident in life. And in your prayers. Not in yourself. In him. Bold because of who he is. Confident because of what he has promised you. And the fact that you trust. Although you can't see him working. He absolutely is working in the world. For those who are weak and oppressed. Even working for you. Watch him do that. And, And anticipate in hope. As Jonathan said earlier, that in the end, he will rescue you. That in the end, he will prove that he has been advocating for the weak all this time. The psalmist, the psalmist is praying from that perspective. So I pray that it will be your perspective. Let's pray. Lord, we we ask that you would teach us how to pray. Uh, 
Sometimes we, we've prayed all our lives, but have, have never learned to pray the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray. So be our father. Help us to change. Help us to change according to our new identity, that we are no longer orphans, but sons and daughters, that we are no longer objects of your wrath, uh, but you through the blood and the death and resurrection of Jesus have judged our sin until there is nothing left to judge. And now in your presence as forgiven, redeemed, adopted sons and daughters, teach us to pray in faith. And Lord, from there, help us to seek justice in our lives and in this world. But first, teach us how to pray. Amen.